Good morning. Good to see everyone this morning. Look forward to our time together in God's Word. You can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We continue our verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans. Today we celebrate our our Lord at the Lord's table today as we remember Him and then uh, fellowship together around Him afterwards in in our fellowship dinner. So please join us for that even if you forgot or don't have food to contribute. There's always lots of food and uh, I could use a little less food anyway, you might say, but um, please feel free to join us as we we worship and fellowship around our Savior this morning. Romans chapter 2, beginning of verse 17, and we'll read into chapter 3 this morning. Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God. And know his will and approve things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Ye who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say you do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? It will not the physically uncircumcised If he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. But what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written that you might be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through me, through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for your goodness to us. Thank you that as our creator, Father, you also in your love and your grace and your mercy have become our savior. For you sent your only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bear our sin on, on, on Calvary's cross. He was buried and he rose again victorious, Father, and we can share in that victory as we trust you by faith. And thank you, wonderful goodness, 
Father, you didn't have to save us. You didn't have to rescue us. You didn't have to send your son. We are the ones who have sinned against you, Father, yet in your great love for us, you, you sent your son to die for us. And we rejoice in him today. And today we remember him as we celebrate the Lord's table together. We remember that great love he has expressed towards us and the salvation that we have, both eternal and abundant. And Father, we pray as your children that we might live in light of that great love and what you provided for us in your grace, that we might live in light of eternity, that we might recognize our time here is short and we're here on a mission, Father, to share with others the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, as well, for those eternal glories you have prepared for us. It's, you tell us it's beyond imagination, the things you've prepared for those who love you. And Father, so we pray today as we sit before your word that you prepare our hearts to hear. Well, Father, watch over the teacher and the listener that your word today might go forth in the strength of your spirit and you might, that we might respect it as the very words of God, the eternal words. That we might take it to heart and apply it to our lives. I pray that it might equip us to be, be witnesses, to be bearers of your love and of your message of the gospel. And Father, we pray for each other. Well, there's people in our lives who are not saved, do not know they're going to heaven, do not know their sins are forgiven. And we pray that you would not only help us to be uh, an effective witness, uh, a, great, a good testimony, but that you'd work in well in the hearts of those who are lost to open their minds to the gospel and give us that boldness to, to share with them your great love. And Father, we pray as well for our missionaries around the world, Father, as they translate scriptures and as they uh, present the word of God to people, Father, lost people, people who need to see you, that you would, you would prosper their message and watch over them in their work as well. Father, we pray this morning for those who aren't with us here this morning, whatever their needs might be, uh, loved ones, fellow believers, friends, family, Father, we pray that you would minister to them, watch over them, and uphold them especially this morning. And for us, Father, may we together with one mind and one mouth glorify you, honor you as we, as we look into your word, as we sing our songs, as we worship and remember you together. May you be honored and glorified, and may you challenge and encourage our hearts. So be our teacher and guide now as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In this portion of the book of Romans, as we study through this book verse by verse, we've been, we've been in this section which deals with three classes of sinners. It's a large section. It, it begins in the middle of chapter 1 and extends into the middle of chapter 3, and it includes a, des a description, God's description, of each one of these classes. We saw in beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, the immoral man, the one who knows he is needy, knows he's a sinner before God. There's no doubt in his life he's a sinner. And some people you walk up to, you know, and you mentioned Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And many people say, and don't I know it? You know, it could be, and that's a description of the immoral man. Last time we looked at the description of the moral man. He's the one who doesn't think he needs a savior. Because the moral man often compares himself. It's described as one who judges others and criticizes others without seeing himself. He doesn't think he needs a savior. He thinks he's in pretty good shape. Well, we come here in the middle of chapter 17 to the third class of the religious man. And he's the man who thinks his good works, his religious works, will earn him heaven. And for all these three classes of people, we extend all the way into chapter 3, where in the end of our story here, the end of our, our portion, the conclusion is, the summary is, in verse chapter 3, verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that does good, there's none, none that understands. All three classes of sinners, God brings to the same conclusion, we're all cut from the same bolt of cloth. We all have sinned before God. Now you might think that God spends a whole lot of ink on this subject. He just doesn't start out with Romans chapter 1 and says, all men are depraved, period. He wants to describe it in full detail. 
And, and, and you might wonder why, because sometimes it feels like you get through these chapters, you get pretty beat up because there's a lot of ugliness because that's what the depravity of man expresses, a sinfulness which lives lives apart from God's holiness, apart from God's righteousness, and the picture isn't pretty. But why does God spend so much time on this? And, may, and maybe it's because we tend to be blind to ourselves. We can really see the wrong in others, but we don't always see ourselves, do we? And God wants to make it crystal clear uh, to ourselves the, our condition under sin. And maybe it's because Satan also dupes us into thinking that we can earn our own way, that we can earn our way to heaven. And yet the Bible repeatedly says there's, there, that it's not by works lest any man should boast. God definitely here wants to ensure that we understand our hopeless condition under sin. And it's not that, that people are terrible, bad, worthless people. We have worth to God. He, he created us. Our good works, our own efforts, our own self-confidence is never going to get us to heaven. But God wants to rescue us. And, and God here wants to be sure that we don't have an inflated view of ourselves because we compare ourselves to others. That's the tendency in human experience. We compare ourselves to each other and think, oh, I'm not as bad as I, that guy. I've got, I've got as much chance of getting to heaven as anybody. And God wants to make sure we don't have that inflated view and he wants to bring us down to reality. And this isn't simply God being a critical God. He just wants us to see the reality of the effect of sin, the stain of sin, the filth of sin that has had on our lives and that in order to enter God's eternal presence, we have to be perfectly holy. James points out that if we offend in one point, we're guilty of all. We're guilty. And God wants to recognize that that stain of sin, the stench of sin, the guilt of sin has to be cleansed in order to go to heaven because otherwise heaven wouldn't be a lot different than this earth, would it? If we came unsaved, uncleansed, and unforgiven. And that's the standard that we have to meet. No man can meet that on his own. We can only find that righteousness in Christ. And that's the theme of this, of this portion, isn't it? It started out in, with the gospel, in Romans 1, verses 16 to 17, it's the power of God into salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. God says, I'll just give you righteousness, because you don't have any of your own. You might think you do. Comparing yourselves to others, you might really think you do. But God says you don't. Not the kind of righteousness that gets you to heaven. He says, but I'll give it to you freely. And we end this portion later in chapter 3, that now, but now the righteousness of God is revealed, and it's available to those who trust him by faith. So we come to the middle of chapter 2 to this third class of sinners. And verse 17 starts out, Indeed, you are called a Jew. And what you really have here in these few verses is the religious man's view of himself. Because God uses the Jew, who was considered to be religious, they were God's chosen people, as an example of the religious man. And, he's, and he, when the thing he points out there is really how religious folks view themselves. He says, indeed, you are called a Jew. You're a religious person. And he says, you, you rest in the law. And so first of all, he's a Jew. And sometimes people, religious people, have confidence in their religious her heritage. I'm a Jew. I'm God's chosen people. If anybody's going to get to heaven, I'm going to get to heaven. Today we say, well, I belong to this church. Or I was born in a Christian nation to a Christian family, belong to a Christian church. Of course, I'm a Christian. Of course, I'm going to heaven. And that's what he's saying here. You're, 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 you're putting your confidence in your religious heritage. And then secondly, you rest in the law. You rest in the law. The law represents the Ten Commandments. The approach to God that I can get to heaven by good works. And what he's saying is you're trusting in yourself, in your good works to get you to heaven. You're resting in the law. That's, that's what a religious person thinks. I'm going to put my confidence, my hope, in my religious works. And the next thing he says here 
in, in verse 18, he says, or verse 17, and you make your boast in God. He says he claims to know God because they're chosen people. You know, and he, he claims to know God, and religious people do. You know, they, they, and, that, and that's what sometimes can be deceiving because they, they, they speak, Christians speak, and they talk about the Bible. They, they know God, and, and yes, they are God's chosen people, but sometimes in some religions, some denominations, people want to be exclusive. We're the only ones who know God, and that's often how the Jews approached it in reality. In verse 18, he says, and know his will. And know his will and approve things that are excellent, being instructed of the law. They claim to know his will. That doesn't mean they're doing his will, but they know his will. And that's because God had given them the law. He had given them his holy standard. He had given him his word. And they knew the difference between right and wrong, at least in theory. You know his will. You've been given the scriptures. You put your confidence in that, that we're the ones who have the Bible. And we know what is right and wrong. And, and he goes on to say, on top of that, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. Now, the key words there are you yourself. You think you're smarter than the average bear. And that's religious, folks. They often condescending. You think you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of foolish, a teacher of babes. He says, you think you're the one that people have to turn to. And, and, and there's an arrogance here when you have that kind of confidence in yourself that religious people seem to demonstrate. And... He and he concludes this by saying here in verse 20, you have a form of knowledge and truth in the law. You have a form of knowledge. You've got the basics. You've got the outline in, in, in keeping the law and knowledge and truth in the law. You understand somewhat of God's will. And what God's describing here is that of religious people who are pretty high on themselves, who have form but not the reality. They have theory but not the practice. It reminds you of a verse in 2 Timothy 3.5 that says this of these religious folks, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Having a form of godliness but denying the power. And where's the power here? Well, we just read about that back in chapter 1. The preaching of the cross is the, is the saving power of God. They have the form, but they don't have the reality. They have external appearance, but no inward change, you could say. Theory, but not reality. Well, then God goes on to say, well, let me describe the religious man. Here, this is how they view themselves. This is their approach to God. In verse 21, he goes on to say, you, therefore, he's going to make a little conclusion, who teach another. You think you, 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 think you know it all. You're, you're the one who can teach. Do you not teach yourself? Do you not teach yourself? What is this? This is, this is called hypocrisy. It's the do what I say, not what I do mentality. It's hypocrisy. You teach others, but you don't even teach yourself. You don't even listen to yourself. You have the theory, but it's not even real to you. And what we find then is religious practice, but not heart convictions. This teaching wasn't real. It's simply theory to them. And he goes on to say, secondly, you who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? And you remember, you know, more, both the moral man and the religious man are quick to join others and point out the error and flaws and sin in others. And he says, you might stand and point your crooked finger at a, at a thief, but do you steal? And I, the inference is here, yeah, yeah, they were dishonest in that area. Because we know there's different forms of stealing, don't we? You can cheat on your taxes. If you work for an employer, you can exaggerate your expense reports. You can, take, you can steal time from your employer. 
there's all kinds of different forms of stealing. And I think he had others in mind here in this passage. And he says, you know, you, you, you point to others in the obvious, but you yourself are steal. It wasn't real to them. That's what he's saying. It's theory. You can identify you have the form, but you don't have the reality. It's not really real to you. It's not a heart issue to you. The next thing he says to them is in verse 22, you who say, do you do not commit adultery? Do you commit adultery? We saw last time in the moral man that Jesus says that if you look on a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart in a description of the sin of the moral man because that's where it emanates. God always deals with the heart. And he says, do you do, you, do, you do the same thing you're pointing, you're pointing fingers at others for? The next thing he says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You, in theory, abhor idols. And the religious leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees especially, would abhor idolatry. God condemned it. They shall not worship any other gods. But he says, you rob temples. What does that mean? Well, one commentator pointed out that during the Babylonian captivity, Israeli businessmen, Jewish businessmen, would profit off merchandise that came from heathen temples. Now, from this, I don't know if they robbed them, how they acquired that merchandise, but for the sake of a buck, they would, they would sell something that they would, in theory, disapprove of. But because a dollar was involved, because, because business was involved, they would, they would associate in this way with idol worship, which God forbid. And so he points out this connection. Though they condemn these things, they themselves would, for the sake of a dollar, and I'm sure they could excuse that, think, well, if we can make more money, we can give more to God. That's the kind of excuses we often use, isn't it? Well, God forbid it. And God pointed out, whatever this fully involved, that it was wrong. And he's not through. He says, you who make, verse 23, your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? And so he's just going to get the overall general reference. You boast in the law. You've got the law from God. He gave it to the Jewish people. But he gave it for the intent that they would share it with the world. And instead, they use it to think they, are, they were, were one up on the world. And they would point at the sinners around them, and he says, you can't even see yourself that you, how often you break the law. They break the law. And they're honest, in all honesty. They may appear pious, above reproach, but they were just as guilty as the ones they would condemn, which is normal. That's what God says. The religious leaders aren't, spe aren't, aren't specially sinless people. They're sinners just like everyone else. But they, that's not how they viewed it. They thought they were, they were better than the average bear. And he goes on to point out the last thing in verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. That as it is written is referring back to that. And there are several passages we're not going to look at this morning where God points out that his name is blasphemed or profaned sometimes he used because of their sin. Because here's God's chosen people, God's holy people, the people God had given the law, the people that God had given the power to be victorious. At times they were powerless, they were defeated, they, were, they had worshipped idols, and there was repeatedly in their history the name of God was blasphemed, profaned because of their testimony. Anything, we look at them and we think, oh, those terrible people, but we hear that today. People say, if that person's a Christian, I don't want nothing to do with it. It's the same thing. That's what he's saying. The name of God is blasphemed several times because of you Jewish people, including the religious leaders. What's really described here is, is, is a religion that does not have the power to change one on the inside. It has external conformity, external standards, but no life. 
And these religious folks were just as bad to the bone, if I could put it that way, on the inside as everyone else. And I want you to turn back to Matthew 23. We won't read this whole chapter because the Lord Jesus deals with this. Only because he is God himself, he can be very direct and forthright with the, with the Pharisees. And what you find in this chapter is Jesus addressing the religious leaders of the Jews, the top draw religious people. He didn't get any more religious than these guys. And in Matthew 23, we're just going to pick it up in verse 13 and read a few verses here where he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. They're the religious, top draw religious leaders of the day. But he calls them hypocrites. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, and these religious folks aren't saved, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You, you deceive them into putting their confidence in their religion rather than in Christ, if I, can, if I can add to that. Verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to, to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Then he calls them blind guides in the next verse. That's serious accusation. He said, when they make a proselyte, he makes them a twofold child of hell. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means you go to a person who maybe knows nothing about the Bible and about Jehovah and about God and the Savior and the Creator, and, and yet, in so many cases, you find people who think they're, in order to enter eternity, whatever type of eternity they might happen to believe in, that they have to be good. And, and, and Judaism steps in, Pharisees step in and say, yeah, you have to, but these are the good works you have to do. And, and so they're already going to hell because they are without Christ, and now they have a false hope. Their hope is in a religion, in good works. And that's how you make them a twofold child of hell. They're more confused and actually harder to reach. And of all three categories of sinners described here, the religious are the hardest to reach because they, they speak Christian speak. Sometimes they're the hardest to discern whether they're saved or not because they speak the language, they talk the talk, but they don't have the reality of the saving power of the gospel. Jump with me, if you would, down to verse 25 in this section. We won't read this whole thing. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. And that's what he's describing. He's an external religion. You polish up the outside to appear pious and holy before men, but inside, what does he say here? You're full of extortion and self-indulgence. You haven't dealt with the heart issue of sin. If inside out, he says, first clean the inside. That's how God always works. That's why the power of the saving gospel starts on the inside. It renews us on the inside so that he can, we can begin to ex exhibit cleanness, a holiness on the outside. Notice verse 27. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs or tombstones, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, and so on and so on and so on. This is, this is God's, Jesus himself's description of the religious man. And he does this not just to criticize them and point his finger at them. Jesus is trying to open their eyes. He's calling them blind. You need to see that religion doesn't save. It doesn't have life. You're full of, you, you look like a, as clean as a whitewashed tombstone, but inside you're dead. You're dead to God. You don't have life. The new life we find in Christ. And so going back to Romans chapter 2, 
we find here that God wants to make it perfectly clear to the, to the religious man. Though he might have some good, and good is always good, morality is always good, good works are always good, but these good works don't, don't get a person to heaven. It's a matter where their confidence is, where they're trusting. Are they resting in the law or in their own works, in their own piousness, or their own efforts, or are they resting in Christ? You see, the gospel, biblical Christianity, addresses man's sickness rather than treats symptoms. And that's one of the differences between Christianity, biblical Christianity, and false religion. I just call it religion because it religion in, has one thing in common, it, and one thing that all religions have in common is that some kind of good works gets you to heaven. And that's a, fal and that's a false religion. That's not what the Bible teaches. And the gospel instead addresses man's sickness rather than simply treat symptoms and polish them up on the outside. The, the gospel deals with that sickness of sin from the inside out, a lack of righteousness. And that's why the righteousness of God is revealed here because man is unrighteous from the inside to the outside and God starts with a heart. And only the cross not only secured forgiveness for our sin before God, provides cleansing before God, but it has the power to change the heart. It transforms us. And God always deals with the heart, which then results in an outward change. You see, the gospel not only provides positional righteousness, we call it. You and I, if you're saved here this morning, if you trust in Christ and Savior, stand in his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God has made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Not something we earn, deserve, we're made, we're given that gift of righteousness, and we stand in his righteousness, we stand accepted in the beloved one, and... And that's how God sees us. And that's why we can be assured of heaven, because we stand in him. Our confidence is in his death, burial, and resurrection. But the, God also the gospel also provides practical righteousness, the ability to live righteously, because God changes us from the inside. He changes our appetites, our motives, our attitudes, which begins to affect our lives as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, but here in Romans 2, he's going to go on. He's not through with them. He's not through with them. He described them, but now he's going to get to the cornerstone of their belief system, circumcision. And God instituted circumcision for the Jews as a, as a sign, simply a sign of his, of his chosen people. You could call it a brand. But they took it to be a, re, a religious means of getting to heaven, and that's how the Jews view circumcision. That circumcision is what is what joined you to God's family, which assured you of heaven. They believe it's saved in today's terminology, much like baptism today. When I grew up in a religious good works church, my little catechism book said that ask your parents, you've been, I remember this question, ask your parents you've been baptized because baptism births you into the kingdom of God. And that's not what the Bible says. It says we're born again through the word of God, through the power of the cross. We're born into God's family. And that's how the Jews viewed circumcision. It was value to them. It was important to them. In fact, as you see the gospel being preached in the book of Acts and beyond, you see that was one of their greatest, greatest resistances. The thing they wanted to hang on to was, well, you still got to be circumcised. You can believe in Christ, but you still have to be circumcised. Not seeing that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. That circumcision then or baptism now has nothing to do with it because rituals are intended to be an outward sign of, of a spiritual, of an inward spiritual reality. That's what circumcision was. It was simply an outward sign of a spiritual reality. They belonged to God. They were God's chosen people. It wasn't a means to it. It was simply a symbol of it. And, and therefore, the importance in circumcision 
was the reality it pictured, that they had belonged to God. And eventually, as it says at the end of this section of verse 29, it, it results in praise to God. Even praise from God, rather than impressing men through the outward ritual. So God here deals with this, the weakness of this ritual, by pointing out its lack of power, its lack of life. In this, in this section, notice verse 25, he says, For circumcision, it's indeed profitable if you keep the law. Because that's the intention. The circumcision is what set the Jew apart to God. And if the Jew would set his life apart to God, God would help him to keep his holy standards found in the Bible, in the scriptures. And he says it's, it's a profitable if that's, how, if that's the effect it has. The, the, the prophet isn't in the, isn't in the symbol. The prophet is in the spiritual benefit. It helps it, as, you, as you set yourself apart to God. But if you're a breaker of the law, if you ignore the law, disregard the law, you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. There's no value. There's no power there. There's no value in it. If it, doesn't, if, it, if it doesn't create a changed life, and circumcision does not create a changed life. That's the point here. Verse 26 says, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, because that's God's intent, to set people apart to himself so they could keep his word, and if the uncircumcised man keeps it, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? He accomplished it without circumcision and accomplished what circumcision was intended to do, to cause God's people to turn to him so that they might live for him. That's what God wanted from his set-apart ones. And then in verse 27, he goes on to say, Will not this un physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you? Then he becomes actually your judge. Who even with your written code, written to the Jews, even with your written code and circumcision, I think the written code may refer to not only the law, but those laws that they added to it, because the Judaism added an awful lot to the, to the God's law. With your written code, and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. And he points out the fact that, in reality, the uncircumcised man, if he keeps the, the righteous requirements of God, is better than you, because he's accomplishing what God wants to accomplish. He simply wants a righteousness in our life. Not only a righteousness that fits us, equips us for heaven, but a righteousness, law-keeping here, that, that exists in our lives in honor to God and his word. Well, he gets to the point in verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, he dishes on this, this thought that simply outward circumcision is all God wants. And he says, that's not the reality. He's not Jew who is one outwardly, or nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He's, he's, he's going to address true circumcision here. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, circumcision that is of the heart. He defines real circumcision here, first of all, as being of the heart. We use a term today that maybe represent, represents this here we find in the scriptures of being sanctified. The Bible says we're sanctified in Christ Jesus. We're set apart to God. And he says that true circumcision, that being set apart to God, sanctified, starts in the heart, where one's heart is set apart to God. And the second thing he goes, goes on to say, it's in the spirit. It's a spiritual circumcision. That's what's important. It's setting ourselves apart to God, and that's what God wants for us. He wants us to see ourselves as set apart to God, and, and that we, so that we set our lives apart to God. It's in the spirit. And the spirit works to change one's practice to fit the righteousness we are in Christ. You see, sanctification as well is both positional and practical. God has set us apart to himself through Christ. 1 Corinthians 1-2 says this, To the church of God, which is at Corinth. And so he's speaking to the church of God, those who are part of God's family at Corinth, 
to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints, with all who in every place call the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Sanctified in Christ, called saints. You see, saint isn't someone who acts saintly. A saint is one who's in Christ, one who's trusted Christ, one who stands in his righteousness, one who was sanctified, set apart to God in Christ. And we call it simply being God's children. We're God's children. If you're a sanctified one, you've been set apart to God if you put your faith in Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And so all these things of salvation, the washing, the, the sanctification, the justification, are all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We're set apart to God. And so that's why we can call ourselves his body, his bride, his children, his church, if you trust Christ as your Savior. That's positional sanctification. That's what we are. That's unchangeable if you have trusted Christ as your Savior. You are a child of God. But there's also practical sanctification, which is kind of what he's addressing here. Ephesians 5.26 says of the Lord Jesus that he might sanctify and cleanse her, that is his bride, the church, with the washing of the water by the word. And so there's that aspect of God wanting our behavior to match our standing, our practice to match our position. He wants to cleanse us up in practice so that we are basically, in the terminology of Romans 3, keeping his laws, keeping his word. That's a practical thing. It's a, it's a progressive thing. It's a thing that occurs throughout our Christian life as we grow. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctify us completely. I mean, God's in the process of making us Christ-like. We're, we're to grow to be like him. We're to grow to live for him, and that's sanctification in the practical realm. As God works to, to, in our lifestyle, in our practice, in our behavior to be like Christ. And that's what he's saying here. Circumcision is of the heart. It sets us apart to God. It's accomplished by the Spirit. And then it's lastly, it's not in the letter. It's not of the letter. It's not of the, of the Mosaic law. It's not by works. Works never accomplish these things. It never can. There's no life. There's no power in a good work system. It's not of the letter. And that results then in verse 29, whose praise is not from men, but from God. You see, it's faith alone in Christ alone that directs all the praise to God, doesn't it? If we have any part of our salvation, we can stick our spiritual thumbs in our spiritual suspenders and say, look what I did. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I've done. One of the hardest things for, for moral folk and religious folk is to admit that all their good works, so they may be good, they may be helpful, they may be kind, doesn't get them to heaven. They aren't good enough for heaven. 1 Corinthians 1, 29 through 31 says this, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Because it is only Jesus Christ who can provide life, who can provide cleansing, the forgiveness, and the power to change. Galatians 6, 14 and 15 says this, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircum avails anything. He says it doesn't matter which you are. He says instead, but a new creation. And in Christ we become a new creation. 
We're born from above. We become God's children. We become part of his family. And that's what we glory in. In fact, that's what we celebrate today in the Lord's table. We're boasting, glorying in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through which we became cleansed and washed and forgiven and sanctified, through which we can find the power to live, uh, live, a, live a holy and right life before God. And that's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, it's by grace we're saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It's a gift, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's that, well, you find the word boast through all scriptures, by the way, because God knows what we tend to do. We tend to like to boast a little, don't we? Take a little pride in our accomplishments. You know, it's like the football player that gets in the end zone and beats his chest and does his happy dance or whatever he does. Look at me. We like to bring attention to ourselves. And God says, when you stand in my presence, the only attention you're going to bring is to the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave his all for you and I on the cross. And that's what we celebrate today, isn't it? Well, going on here in, in Romans 3, here the Bible asks, he asks three questions. Well, We'll just cover this quickly here. First of all, he says, verse 1, what advantage then has the Jew or what profit of circumcision? If that's the case, what's the big deal about being a Jew or the Jews being circumcised as a symbol of their relationship to God? Paul says, much in every way, verse 2. Chiefly, to them we're committed the oracles of God. He says it is a big deal to be a Jew, to be circumcised. Not as a means to heaven, but because primarily, he says, to them we're committed the oracles of God. Because God gave him his word to share with the world. Now, they didn't always share it with the world, just like we don't always share it with the world, but that was the point. They were, they were, they were privileged to carry the word of God. That's what he's pointing out. They had a tremendous pr privilege to bring us the scriptures, and they did bring us to the scriptures. The, Jew, the Bible is primarily a Jewish book written by primarily Jewish authors, and God brought through the Jewish family, us, brought us the word of God, the message of salvation. In fact, you could add to that, they brought to us the Savior, the Messiah. Remember the original promise we, we studied Back in Genesis, the given to Abraham, that through him, through Abraham, the whole world be blessed. And we find that fulfilled in the person of Christ. So that kind of rules out any anti-Semitism, by the way, doesn't it? God says, wait a minute, it is important. They, are, they, are, they have a privilege standing before God. Not as a means to heaven, but as a representative of God himself. Verse 3 asks a second question, for what if some do not believe? And that's looking back to the Jews. They didn't always believe. Not all the Jews believed. They didn't all walk by faith. They didn't always follow God's word. They didn't always even accept God's word. He says, will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Because it didn't work for them, should we throw out the Bible, if I can paraphrase it? That's what he said. That's what the question is. Because it didn't work for them, because they tripped and fell at every occasion, and, the, and that's what the Old Testament is. Both the successes and the many failures of the Jews, should we throw out the Bible? And he says, certainly not. Let God be true and every man a liar. That's what he says, as it is written. That you may be justified in your words and overcome when you are judged. And sometimes people judge God by the actions of his people. And a lot of people do that today. They disregard Christianity because of the failures of others. And I would say this, let us not be the generation that, that turns away from God so that others can blaspheme God throughout the Bible. And that's, what he, and, and that's the questions asked here. And he says, absolutely not, because God is always true. His ways work. There's been a movement throughout the years to do church and Christianity in a different way because the old model didn't work and the problem wasn't with the model, the problem was with the people sitting in the pews. Did we take the word of God to heart? And that's a whole, a whole other message. I won't go there. The next question then, 
Verse 5 says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say is God who inflicts wrath, is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And he says, I speak as a man. And what he means here, he says, I, I'm, I'm bringing up this argument that some men are offering. This isn't from God. This is what people are saying is really what he's saying here. He says, certainly not. For how then will God judge the world? And he goes on to explain, for if the truth of God has increased through my light to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? What he's saying here is that my sin gives occasion for the grace of God. And sometimes you look at somebody who was maybe bound up in addictions, whose life was falling apart, and see God transform them, and, and the grace of God reach down and save them and cleanse them and pick them up, pick them up and put them on the way. And, the, and, and what some people are saying, well, if that's the case, let's just, let's just verse 8 says, let's do evil that good may come. And that's a convoluted, twisted argument. And that's why he's speaking as a man. Well, if that's the case, let's sin as much as we can so we can see the grace of God as much as we can. It's just it's backwards. And he says that because he says in verse 8, as we are slanderously reported, as some affirm that we, say, that we say that. He says their condemnation is just. That's just a conclusion. They're just, it's, it's just wrong. And so he, he deals with this in regards to the context of the religious man. And then he comes to this conclusion that we read in our scripture reading. What then, after these three categories of sinners are discussed, what then are we Jews, Paul was a Jew, better than they, the moral man and the immoral man? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles that they are all under sin. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so the rest of these verses deal with that universal depravity of man, that we are all under sin, there's none righteous, there's none who understands. There's none who sought after God. No, not one. And so God takes the immoral, ma the immoral man, the moral man, and the religious man, who we as people categorize as, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so, so to speak. God says you're all, one, you're all on one level playing field. You're all sinners. Not that good isn't good, but that good never gets you to heaven. You're just as so much a sinner as the immoral man. All have sinned. We're none righteous. No, not one. And that's why the next chapters, as we get into them, we're going to discuss the righteousness of God, how God so wonderfully and beautifully provided for salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you jump down to verse 19 here, it says this, For now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, the religious folks, whoever wants to keep the Ten Commandments in order to get to heaven, he says in reality what happens is that every mouth might be stopped and the whole world might become guilty before God because none of us keeps the law. It declares us guilty. If we're honest, that's really what happens. If someone says, you ask someone how a person gets to heaven, and they say, well, I think you've got to keep the Ten Commandments. The next question is, first, do you know them? And most people can't name them, at least not all ten. Second question is, have you kept them? And when they say yes, you know they lied. They didn't keep them. It declares us guilty. God never intended it as a means to heaven. He intended it to expose our unrighteousness as he established his righteous standards. The whole world becomes guilty. Therefore, verse 20, by the deeds of the law, whatever that law is, and here it is in this context, it's the Ten Commandments in the Mosaic Law. It can, it can be any formula you plug into that category of good works. No flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Instead, but now, verse 21, that's the good news, but now the righteousness of God is revealed. And that's what we celebrate today in the Lord's table, that God has provided for you and I, for all this ugliness we've seen in this passage, all the hypocrisy and the evil. God has provided for us reality, the reality of deliverance, of salvation, 
because heaven is a very real thing. I had a chance to share the gospel with someone real recently, and most people don't want to acknowledge the fact that they're going to go one or two places after they die. They just kind of smooth over it, you know, kind of poo-poo it and just ignore it and think, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and maybe it's real, maybe it's not. And that's a reality. Our souls are eternal. And God has provided for us what we could not provide for ourselves, deliverance, rescue, salvation, eternal life. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's table today. So before we continue, let's pray. Father, we are thank you, thankful today for the cross of Jesus Christ. And Father, we have spent the last few weeks looking at the bad news. And it's not always fun to look at, but it is reality. And you want to be clear to us, make it clear to us that we are desperately needy sinners. But thank you, Father, that through Christ you provided a solution, a remedy, a rescue, deliverance, because Jesus died in our place, took our sins upon the cross so that you then would forgive us. You would give us the gift of eternal life, a standing in the righteousness of Christ, the assurance of heaven, cleansing, forgiveness. And Father, we're so thankful today. And as we celebrate him today, Father, may you draw our hearts to him. May we leave this place as we, as we celebrate his table and fellowship together around the dinner. May we leave this place rejoicing in the great love that you have for us in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.